Welcome to Health Now from WebMD. I'm your host, Carrie Gann. We have a great show for you today, but first, I want to ask you for a favor. Please subscribe to this podcast, if you don't already, that is. Also, take a second to rate and review our show in your podcast app, especially if you're a regular listener. That will help other people find us. We'd really appreciate it. Okay, let's get started. Our guest today is psychiatrist Patrice Harris, MD. She's the president of the American Medical Association, the first African-American woman to hold that title. Dr. Harris is passionate about helping children. She's an expert in children's mental health and childhood trauma. As AMA president, Dr. Harris is also focusing on the opioid crisis. Dr. Harris grew up in Bluefield, West Virginia, and went to West Virginia University for college and medical school. She did her psychiatry residency and two fellowships in child and adolescent psychiatry and forensic psychiatry at Emory University. She calls Atlanta home now and is still in private practice. Dr. Harris, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to be on the program. Certainly. And congratulations on the AMA presidency. I know it's been a, a couple of months, but um, that's wonderful news. Thank you very much. It's It's been about three months, and it's been a very exciting and whirlwind and wonderful time. <laughs> You're just getting started, I'm sure. Uh, what are the things that you knew you wanted to work on right away? Well, certainly each uh, president brings their unique lens and vision to the AMA presidency. And while we certainly focus on the major strategic priorities of the AMA, as a child and adolescent psychiatrist, I wanted to bring three areas into sharper focus. I wanted to elevate these three priorities again as they are woven into the work of the AMA. And the first was just elevating the importance of integrating mental health care into overall health care. Sometimes we joke that people forget that uh, the head is connected to the rest of the body, and, and <laughs> oftentimes mental health care is seen as separate and apart from overall health care. And so I said I wanted to elevate, uh, again, the importance of that integration. The second thing I wanted to focus, focus on was you know, increasing uh, the diversity of the physician workforce. I said in my inaugural address that um, we need to make sure that um, the, the faces of physicians match the faces of our patients. Uh, and so we want to increase the diversity of the physician workforce, uh, but not just as a checkbox measure, but really uh, to enhance our work towards uh, health equity. And then the third issue is around childhood trauma. Fortunately, we've seen uh, research expand in the last several years and uh, some focus on the ACEs work, the adverse childhood experiences work, uh, but certainly we as a community, again, as a country, as a nation, not just the medical profession, need to continue to make sure that we are elevating the issues around childhood trauma and how they impact health outcomes over the course of a lifetime. So those are the three areas that I wanted to elevate while I have this platform. There has been quite a bit of research I've noticed recently about the very long-lasting effects of childhood trauma on physical and mental health later in life. Absolutely, and, and, and that 
is is progress because certainly in the health community, uh, we rely on data and we rely on science and the evidence. And so it is good news that this area of science is expanding. When I first started to work in this area around looking at the impact of childhood trauma on brain development, there wasn't a lot of research. So certainly we have come a long way. It still is a relatively young science, and we continue to need to advance that science. Right. Very important topic area. When your term is up and you look back on your time as AMA president, I know you're just getting started, so maybe your mind isn't quite there yet, but what are the things that you think you'd like to have accomplished at the end of your term? Well, as uh, my predecessor, Dr. Barbara McEnany, mentioned, that um, a year goes by pretty quickly. That's true. (laughs) And if only, yes, and if only we could solve all of the uh, crises and and challenges that impact us today. But I I think uh, that over the course of a year, I will look back, and if we have just moved the needle on the three areas that I spoke about, if we have moved the needle on health equity, if we have moved the needle on a better appreciation of the importance of mental health and and certainly moved the needle in lessening the stigma around mental health, and if we have, again, elevated the conversation around childhood trauma and um, attacking the dysfunction in healthcare and looking at how we train the next generation of physicians, then um, I will look back and say we continue to be well on our way to addressing the health challenges that um, face this country. Tell us about the major initiatives or platforms that the AMA is working on and what changes you expect in on those topics. Well, the AMA has three what we call strategic arcs. These are huge, broad buckets uh, that describe the work that we are doing. And so the first is attacking the dysfunction in healthcare. We know that there are so many administrative and regulatory burdens and systemic burdens that really negative impact physicians and our patients and negatively impact the patient-physician relationship. So in this broad area, the AMA is looking at, again, attacking the dysfunction in healthcare. And so, for example, removing administrative barriers such as prior authorization, which delays care, um, removing some of the regulatory uh, burdens around electronic health records and getting away from clicks and checking boxes that don't really advance uh, health outcomes or patient care. The second broad area focuses on chronic diseases, improving, we call this our improving health outcome strategic arc. Now we are are focused on just a couple of uh, the chronic diseases that affect this country, but two huge uh, areas that really not only take a toll on this country financially, but also, of course, a human toll. And those are hypertension and prediabetes. And when we look at prediabetes, we ask the question, what if we could prevent folks from even developing 
type 2 diabetes. And of course, the opioid crisis since its inception in 2014, I've had the wonderful privilege to serve as chair of the AMA's Opioid Task Force, and that's a group of national and state uh, medical associations that are really um, looking at a roadmap forward, how this country uh, can continue to make progress as we uh, really confront uh, the opioid epidemic. The third area is around innovation. You know, we really haven't changed how we educate the next generation of physicians for decades. So the AMA in about 2013 um, gave 11 medical schools $1 million grants to further stimulate, because work was already occurring in this area, but further stimulate interest and innovation in how we train the next generation of physicians. And then also a part of our innovation ecosystem work, uh, we're looking at uh, digital health care and apps and assisted uh, intelligence. We, we, we don't use the term artificial in intelligence, but... <laughs> We talk about, you know, how can uh, technology positively impact our ability to take care of patients? Uh, we all know the drain of electronic health records and how, uh, for the most part, they do not positively um, support physicians taking care of our patients. And so we want to make sure that whatever is developed in the future regarding digital technology or apps, software, hardware, we want to make sure that it advances our ability to care for our patients. So those are three broad uh, strategic areas of focus and certainly under each of those areas is so many ideas and policy issues and work. I wanted to go back to um, the focus that you mentioned on opioids and the opioid crisis. We had a recent episode, a recent interview with a medical bioethicist from Johns Hopkins, Travis Reeder, who talked to us about his struggle with opioid dependence after he was in a motorcycle crash and had many painful surgeries to recover from that. And he, he ended up getting hooked on, or dependent, excuse me, on the opioids that he was taking to manage his pain. And he talked about how hard it was for him to get good advice from his doctors about how to responsibly stop taking the opioid drugs. Um, how is the AMA helping doctors work on this issue? And can you give people some perspective on when opioids are the best choice for medical care? I know that obviously they're a, a very um, controversial medication at this point. Well, certainly the work of the Opioid Task Force has been focused on, number one, how we can demonstrate physician leadership on this issue, and number two, how physicians can better coordinate and collaborate re efforts to address this epidemic. And that's, again, coordination and collaboration within the physician community and also with external stakeholders, because I think there's no question um, that to address this public health epidemic, in fact, to address any public health epidemic requires an all-in approach. Our first set of recommendations were in 2015, and that was to enhance our education on 
um, opioids in general and appropriate prescribing and substance use disorders and pain because I think we cannot talk about the opioid epidemic without also talking about um, our systems, the health systems approach to pain. And we have to make sure that as we are decreasing appropriately uh, the number of opioid prescriptions, that our patients also have access to comprehensive multimodal alternatives to treat their pain. Uh, first of all, um, I'm glad you made, and I and I didn't hear the, the podcast, but I really appreciated the fact that you used the word dependent because we have to make sure that we are specific in our language so that we are non-stigmatizing, and, and there is a difference to having an addiction and being physiologically dependent. Recently, we've developed two things, a, a second set of recommendations, and all of these are available uh, on our website, uh, so I won't go uh, into great detail, but a second set of recommendations specifically around access to treatment. This epidemic has evolved, as you know. It started out, actually we are in the fourth wave, although there was, there was a wave of heroin, and we have to uh, make sure that we mention that in the 80s because our approach uh, to uh, opioids has changed. It used to be one of incarceration, and now it's one of treatment. And so we always have to make sure that we elevate that, that we have appropriately moved away uh, from incarceration. Unfortunately, um, when mainly communities of color were affected, our response was incarceration, but we um, now um, see the broader community, I would say physicians knew this all along, uh, but the broader community is better able to appreciate the need for treatment. But now that we know that, we know that the access to treatment across this country is unacceptable. Only two in 10 uh, patients who want it can get it at the time they need it. And so the AMA is laser focused on raising that issue around treatment uh, and raising the need to reduce barriers to treatment. And so we just released a detailed, what we call our roadmap for states to use uh, going forward. We have four states that have really been the pilot projects of this roadmap. And so now we have to work on implementation, this enforcement, inspecting uh, what we are expecting, and making sure uh, that adequate treatment is available both uh, to those who have a substance use disorder, but also for folks who are in pain. And as you so noted, um, we know that the best approach, and there's a recent uh, HHS task force on pain, uh, which had a comprehensive set of recommendations, but the best approach is to make sure that um, a physician has more than one tool in a toolbox to address pain. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Thank you. Um, so you are, as we mentioned in the beginning of the interview, the first African-American woman to lead the AMA. Um, how has that felt uh, being a historic president for this organization, and what does it mean to you to be in that role? Well, certainly it's been an honor and a privilege, and I have to say uh, that, that clearly I was aware of the historic uh, nature of uh, my election, even when I was running uh, for this uh, position. But I have to say I have been... Um, surprised of the magnitude of the impact outside of, of health care. So many folks 
have come up to me at meetings or sent me letters of uh, congratulations and just talked about how proud they are uh, of this accomplishment and how um, I can serve as an inspiration for so many young girls uh, and so many uh, young girls and boys uh, from communities of color. So it has been a wonderful opportunity. With that, though, comes responsibility and certainly a responsibility I accept. And, and I've said this on a couple of occasions that um, the responsibility of a first is to make sure you're not the last. And that makes, uh, means making sure you leave a legacy um, for others to follow and uh, that there are, you serve as a role model and a mentor and a supporter, uh, but mainly you just serve as a visible uh, representation, tangible evidence uh, that um, you can, uh, again, be a, become a physician if that's what you want to be, and you can also aspire uh, to the uh, highest elected position within the American Medical Association. I'm sure that's um, a great message to send when you're talking to medical students also who are just getting started in their careers. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's early. Medical Medical school is not easy. I know this does not come as a surprise to anyone. Um, and uh, it's uh, you know in the um, in the context of uh, healthcare and uh, and a lot of challenges, I always tell the medical students that they have chosen a wonderful profession, a profession that will change and grow and evolve um, as uh, you know our healthcare changes systems healthcare uh, as our healthcare systems change, grow and evolve. Uh, but they have made a wonderful decision, and, and it's important, though, to be involved and to stay engaged and advocate um, for our patients and our ability uh, to provide the best care uh, for our patients. And you're also a psychiatrist. Has there been a psychiatrist to lead the AMA before? There has. There has. Uh, I am the third psychiatrist to lead uh, the AMA, actually, and the second psychiatrist was just Maybe about eight years or so, mm. uh, Dr. Jerry Lazarus from California. But I have to say that I am, again, the, the, the um, first child psychiatrist uh, oh. to lead uh, the organization. So uh, I'm the third. And, again, it, that's been uh, also a wonderful opportunity. So many psychiatrists uh, from across the country say they are just so very uh, excited about uh, the fact that a psychiatrist, a child psychiatrist, is leading the American Medical Association. How do you think that specialty influences your leadership style, if it does at all? Well, I believe uh, that through my training, I um, have been trained uh, to appreciate um, the need to listen. <laughs> I think good leaders listen. Definitely. Uh, yes, yes. I uh, believe that I also can uh, appreciate through my training, appreciating different points of view and the need to make sure that all points of view are um, elevated. 
I, you know, I joke a lot about um, psychiatrists and say that, you know, one of our jobs is to make sure that the elephants in the room uh, get talked about. <laughs> and so I believe my, my uh, psychiatric training has helped me um, be courageous in identifying the elephants in the room. So uh, in those ways, and probably many more that I may not even be aware of, I think my training has been very helpful. In fact, when I talk to psychiatrists, I encourage them to become leaders, whether it's in their academic institutions or their hospitals or their private practices, and certainly organized medicine, because I do think that our skill set as psychiatrists really, uh, you know, help us uh, in, in leadership roles. Earlier you mentioned, um, I believe one of the AMA's strategic arcs is around um, disparities in the physician workforce and ensuring that patients and doctors, um, you know, that the physicians reflect what their patients look like. Are there particular initiatives around that or around health disparities in general, um, including access to care, that um, the AMA is working on? Absolutely. And I am so very excited to make sure that everyone knows that the AMA uh, recently hired, actually earlier this year, our first chief health equity officer, Dr. Aletha Maybank, and she will be leading our efforts at the AMA in addressing health equity. And as part of that work, of course, even prior to Dr. Maybank coming on, we established the AMA's Center for Health Equity. And again, Dr. Maybank will be leading that center. And we are just excited. You know, for, for many years, the AMA um, had... Uh, we, we participated um, as one of the three co-leaders of the Commission to End Health Disparities. So we have a long-term uh, body of work in this area, and I call our new work with Dr. Maybank and the Center, Center is our Health Equity 2.0 work, and we will be looking at health equity across the spectrum from uh, issues and disparities that affect uh, communities of color, uh, looking at gender equity, looking at health issues around the LGBTQ community. So, again, I'm very excited about this work and uh, Dr. Maybank. And, and what we wanted to make sure was that health equity wasn't, again, something that should be over to the side. But it is our mission and goal to embed health equity into the DNA of the work of the AMA and, of course, be that model, uh, be a model uh, for that work outside of the AMA. And, of course, a part of that work will be looking at how we uh, ensure that our physician workforce is a diverse one. But, again, uh, in the service of our ultimate goal, which uh, has to do with patients uh, and making sure that our patients have improved uh, health outcomes. So we're very excited about our, our uh, new work in health equity. But um, even with that, we know that there are many determinants of health uh, that occur outside the physician's offices and outside of our hospitals. And so a part of that will be addressing the factors that contribute uh, to those health disparities, those differences, uh, those uh, preventable differences, if you will, um, and making sure that we get uh, to 
a position of health equity, where again, health equity meaning everyone has the opportunity to uh, live their healthiest lives. So stay tuned. Uh, lots more to come in our work on health equity. It's a very uh, complicated, complex area to be sure. Tell us about your own journey to becoming a doctor. When did you know that that's what you wanted to do? Well, I have known that I've wanted to be a physician, I, you know, since, uh, you know, 10 years old or so. Although my cousin, uh, one of my cousins, one of my many cousins, I have a large extended family, says he remembers me talking about this even before then. Uh, but my inspiration was Marcus Welby. Now, some of the younger listeners of the podcast are going to have to <laughs> Google Marcus Welby. That, that, that's fine. Uh, but uh, Marcus Welby, you know, came into my living room weekly because I didn't have anyone in my family or any close family friends who were physicians. But what I liked about Marcus Welby, what I saw on TV, was Dr. Welby cared about his patients' illnesses, uh, but he also cared about, uh, again, thinking broadly, those other factors, their families, their communities, those other factors that determine health outcomes. And that appealed to me back then. And I knew that physicians had a platform. They were respected in the community, and they had a platform to, again, improve health on a broader level. But as I say uh, today, never did I ever dream uh, that I would have the wonderful platform that I have uh, being president of the American Medical Association. But um, that was my early inspiration. My family was very supportive. Now, I did have some detours and challenges when I got to WVU as an undergrad. I had no clue what to major in. How do you get to medical school? I just didn't know. And I didn't always get the best advice. And, you know, some tried to steer me in other directions. Some tried to steer me uh, to be a nurse. And again, nurses are critical partners in the, in the on the healthcare team and wonderful professionals. That's just not what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, but eventually, after all the detours and the setbacks and the challenges, I, uh, I went through uh, uh, to uh, medical school here at West Virginia, and uh, it's just been an amazing ride. And I always tell folks there will be detours and challenges and setbacks, and so what you can do is learn from those and enjoy the journey. Your career is is ever-evolving. How did you choose psychiatry as your field and your specialty of, of childhood psychiatry within that field? Yeah, so I, you wanted to be a pediatrician, so I've always I had this passion for improving the lives of children. Um, I knew that um, there was great opportunity in impacting the course of health when you intervene early. And so I planned to be a pediatrician when I went to medical school. But during my third year, when I was rotating on my psychiatry clerkship, I was so fascinated by one of my patients who was delusional. Um, So he was thinking he had fixed false beliefs. Um, But I was just so fascinated by neurobiology and the brain. And I just fell in love with psychiatry. And so I thought, well, you know what? I can and can combine my love for psychiatry, my newfound love for psychiatry, as a specialty of choice with my long-term uh, passion for children and do child psychiatry. And do you still see patients today? When I can, but I have to tell you the last three weeks, it's been co- three weeks, the last three months, <laughs> 
it is flying by quickly. Uh, have been quite uh, challenging. I've been on the road, um, but when I can, but I tell you, when I'm in Atlanta and I have a day, I go down uh, to the agency where I uh, saw patients, and uh, I still connect with my patients. I can't let go. They they realize it, and, and they welcome me back. But um, So when I can, I will uh, see patients, but my the AMA travel schedule, the president's travel schedule is quite, uh, quite demanding. Okay, because my next question was going to be, how do you have time to do all of this? <laughs> yes, <But> yes. <laughs> you still get it in when you can, it sounds like. That's wonderful. Absolutely. We hear so much today about mind-body health, right? A lot of Western medicine has focused on the physical aspect, and there's also growing awareness about the impact of the mental and emotional sides of health. Are there ways that you see the medical community making this shift from, you know, the physical side to incorporating the other sides as well? Well, I think that uh, the medical community is... um, talking about things like, again, the importance of integrating uh, mental health into overall health care, the importance of healthy living and looking at sort of mind, body, and spirit. Uh, again, looking, I guess, from a whole health perspective, uh, you hear a lot of talk about population health and appreciating it from, from that aspect. Uh, a lot of issues around public health, as you know, um, if you want to uh, help regarding the spread of infectious diseases, uh, some that we thought were eradicating but we see are returning, um, then you have to talk about uh, the importance of vaccines. So I, and I think, as, as you heard me say earlier, um, there's a, an acute awareness of uh, the need to appreciate and understand the importance of food insecurity and housing and transportation um, all employment, so whether or not you have a job, um, and an appreciation of how all of those factors, of course, racism and discrimination, how all of those factors affect health. Now, here it's important to note that the responsibility for addressing many of those factors do not uh, belong uh, to the physician community alone, uh, just like um the all-in proposition for addressing the opioid epidemic, addressing all of these factors that impact health outcomes require a partnership. Certainly it is sometimes about treating that hypertension and treating that disease, um, and we are certainly willing, uh, ready, and able to be partners as we start uh, to address, again, looking at the whole health and all of the issues that impact health outcomes. While I have you, I wanted to bring up another big area that we often hear a lot more about lately, and that's lifestyle medicine. Uh, We sometimes hear people say that doctors don't get a lot of training on nutrition or on the best ways to lose weight, um, which seems a little counterintuitive. You would think your doctor would be the expert. Um, Do you see that changing, and how might that happen? Does the AMA play a role in that? AMA absolutely plays a role in in that and looking again specifically at uh, managing obesity obesity and understanding of course nutrition as a as a part of that in, in fact um, just in June of 17, um, as you may know, or your audience may uh, be aware that the AMA, again, is, as I call it, the Congress of Medicine, and 
twice a year all of the representatives from every state and every specialty and some other special sections come together and develop AMA policy. And in uh, June of 17, our House of Delegates adopted policy on obesity and nutrition education for um, physicians in training. And now um, the resources that um, are developed out of that, and of course that will be an ongoing journey, are available on our website um, for use by everyone, medical students, teaching faculty, practicing physicians. Uh, Again, as we uh, look to nutrition and look to, again, prevent, diagnose, and manage obesity. Um, We did um, recognize that um, we wanted to do a better job uh, of uh, training uh, regarding nutrition education. And you earlier uh, heard me talk about one of our specific priorities where we are uh, looking at innovation and how we train the next generation of medical students. Now, uh, that specific initiative is called our ACE initiative. And ACE, A-C-E, stands for Accelerating Change in Medical Education. And those um, grants that I talked about and also some additional grants that we've awarded since um, 2013, since the original 11. But I just want to highlight that two medical schools that are a part of that work, uh, that Accelerating Change in Medical Education work and a part of our consortium, the NYU School of Medicine and the University of Chicago School of Medicine, they have incorporated nutrition education into their curriculum. And what happens in this medical school consortium, the medical schools learn from one another and incorporate best practices. So we're very excited about that. And um, through those courses, the schools are working to ensure that their medical students gain um, the knowledge they will need to help our patients make healthy food and beverage choices within the clinical setting. That being said, again, as as I say, as we talk about healthy behaviors and the behaviors that impact health uh, and the choices, the choices you make are based on the choices that you have. Mm -hmm. And so while I can and should uh, talk and do, by the way, (laughs) talk to my patients about uh, their, uh, you know, making healthy choices and nutrition, um, uh, nutritious, uh, making nutritious meals and a lot of work that actually we did in, uh, in Atlanta. If a patient doesn't have access to, uh, you know, a, a grocery store or a community garden where they can access these issues, then um, we, we have to make sure that that happens. So, that, but absolutely, physicians have a role to play in this. Dr. Patrice Harris, the president of the American Medical Association, thank you so much for joining us today. It was great to talk to you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it, and I appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Harris just told us about all the important issues that doctors have their eyes on these days. But when it comes to your relationship with your own doctor, our tweak of the week may help your appointments run a little bit smoother. Start a running list of things you need to tell your doctor. You know how it goes. Doctor appointments are super short, and you're probably on your way home when you remember at least some of what you meant to bring up. Your list could include things like any changes you've noticed in yourself, whether it's physical, emotional, or mental, and how much they affect your daily life. You may want to ask whether you're taking all of your prescriptions correctly. Also mention any questions you have about whether you still need to take all of those meds, or if you feel like they're causing side effects. Also, bring up all the vitamins and other supplements you take. Some of these may affect your medications, so it's a good idea to check on that. 
And be sure to talk about how much you drink, whether you smoke or vape, even if you don't do it all the time, and risky sex or any problems with sex. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can tune in next time. Until then, keep up with WebMD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Bye for now.